This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And we are delighted to be once again bringing you the best information we can provide for you in the numismatic community. Thanks to our friends at Amos Advantage helping us step up each and every time we come before you here. Well, we've been really looking forward to having this particular episode here because a lot of things are going on in the numismatic world here. And I know, Jeff, you're struggling to keep up with everything just as I am. So uh, if you're a little tired, I understand. Yeah, it's, uh, my gosh, the world these days just continues apace, but we're so fortunate to have Jeff Garrett on the episode this week. Jeff is a a name, you know, he's somebody that barely needs introduction, if at all, but for those who don't know of him, first off, he's like the nicest guy in the hobby you'll meet, but, um, you know, he's past ANA president, past uh, president of the Professional Numismatist Guild. He's author or co-author of many books. But, you know, it's probably his role as senior editor of the Red Book that really is where his impact on the hobby is felt at the grassroots level in that way, as well as being a dealer. So we wanted to talk to him because, well, he's always good for sharing information super friendly about that, and always has something worth hearing or reading, as it were. But, you know, this is the 75th anniversary edition of the Red Book just came out, uh, literally just hitting bookstores, shelves, uh, coin shops uh, in the last few weeks. So it was, uh, you know, we've been trying to get uh, this pinned down and we finally made it work. Yeah, it'd be interesting to wonder what uh, R.S. Yeoman thought about back in the day when he got it started and uh, did some research and found out that, you know, next year it's going to be the 80th anniversary of the Blue Book. So I wonder if there's going to be a similar celebration going on about that one. But having the opportunity to talk to Jeff in addition to all those roles that you cited here, he was one of the individuals who was singled out as one of our top influencers, one of Coin World's most influential people. And he was actually in the top 10 and a deserved honor, I think, in this case. And congratulations to everyone who uh, got themselves on that list. If you're not familiar with it, you can check it out on our Coin World website in the upper right-hand corner. Find out the uh, most influential. Give it a click. You should know some of the names. You should know most of the names, actually. But uh, there may be some on there that uh, you could become quite familiar with. So we're really proud of the opportunity to recognize the living individuals who are doing so much for this Big Tent hobby, and uh, we uh, had that opportunity. Jeff is just one of them. I know we're going to have a couple more who made that list 
in the near future. I'm just hoping that we can get a bunch more, actually. But uh, we were very fortunate to have the podcast to help take what's on the pages of Coin World or in the special editions and bring it to life a little bit, add another dimension, if you will. So we're really looking forward to uh, what lies ahead. We're always looking forward to what lies ahead. And we also invite you to help us, help guide us along the way here. Make sure you send your comments, your questions, and your suggestions right along to the email addresses that you can find on this. We appreciate the, the support that you're giving and have given to this podcast on any of the platforms in which you're listening to. We hope you're subscribing and telling all your friends about it because hopefully we can find a common ground here and find some interest because we've got a lot more knowledge that we can share here. And we're going to be willing to do that because like minds, you know how that goes. So we're, we're glad to have this opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, we, um, we've actually been fortunate as a podcast to have several of the folks on in previous episodes. And as you know, we're looking to get some of the top influencers on going forward. But, uh, you know, we're going to have everybody from the movers and shakers at the top end to collectors doing big things. So if you hear us something, let us know. But um, it was interesting as we sat down with Jeff to to talk to him about the market and the Red Book and, and various things. This business, this hobby is just crushing it right now. And what a wonderful thing to see. You know, I know as long as I've been at Coin World, there were folks who wanted Coin World to be sort of cheerleaders. And, you know, there's a time and a place for that role. A publication should really reflect the community. You know, what is the community talking about and doing and, and talking amongst itself about? And, you know, whether that's bad times or good, you know, you reflect what's going on. Well, these are some really good times for coin collecting. You know, you have folks who are flooding into asset classes. You have folks who are spending time, you know, with family. Uh, we touched upon that a little bit with Jeff. Uh, he touched upon it, that with us. That's what this is about. It's funny because, I, you know, I, I failed to mention it in the interview, but when we spoke with Jeff earlier that day, he had commented to somebody's post on Facebook about how, you know, sort of disappointed he was that he had, he had not found any of the uh, W Mint Mark V75 Privy Mark quarters. And, you know, he's still looking. And he, he told us after the fact, you know, yeah, I still look at every quarter in my change, you know. And, you know, this is a guy who, you know, he could go out and buy a roll of them if he wanted to. But that's not the point. The point is the fun, the thrill of the hunt. You know, it's like Larry and, and your search for the Florida quarter. Any any good news update for, for the listeners? No, as a matter of fact, truth be told, I tried to offer my 2020 Samoa quarter to uh, 2020 W Samoa quarter to Jeff in exchange for Florida, either a P or a D, and he didn't bite. Well, because, this Jeff you know, bite. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the it's part of the uh, the thrill of the hunt thing. And I, I, you know, in retrospect, I I wouldn't do it because I was fortunate enough to find one of those 2020 W's in the wild, and I'm going to be fortunate enough to find everything to complete both the state set and the America the Beautiful set. And my objective is to do it before we start on the new series. But right now, the big thing is I still haven't seen my first Washington crossing the Delaware quarter. I keep chunking money into those change machines, and that's not going to work. 
I'm going to have to find it in the wild somewhere. It's going to have to some cashier is going to open up a roll of quarters and drop them in the cash drawer. And it's going to be just a bonanza time. I've just got to find the right store and make the right purchase to get the right amount of change back because here lately they've been returning two dimes and a nickel and that just frustrates me to no end. But, you know, it's just the case like that. It is part of that thrill of the hunt thing. And that's what makes it exciting. And just the idea of completing it and just wonder, is Florida going to be the last one I need? I'm down to uh, the area of uh, the quarters uh, after from... The, after the bicentennial quarter all the way up until we started with the state series. And I only missing three of those. So, you know, knowing that we're going to get there, get that possibility. Uh, the quarter dollar is going to be in the news. I mean, it was a big discussion here in the latest issue we put together for Coin World too. So some exciting changes could be coming in 2022. So I want to get my set completed before those new changes come out. Yeah, of course, and and it's interesting. You're you're referring to, of course, the uh, famous American women coins that are coming out, right? Well, and we find out through Paul Jokes's work that it could be more than that. There's uh, recommendations were made this week by the CFA and the CCAC to change the obverse as well. Ooh, so yeah, so you know, check it out. It's in our latest issue. That's just one of the. Uh, things that's come down here and it's, it's always great to be on the cutting edge and Paul does a great job getting that information for us. So I was very fortunate to also to be involved with a story involving the finding of an 1808 um, 50 cent piece in the state of Maryland to help lead to the discovery of Harriet Tubman's father's homestead and had an opportunity to talk to the archaeologist about that. And that was one of our, our big stories this week. So you know, kind of blow my horn a little bit, but it's kind of interesting to talk to people. You know, archaeologists have a special place in their heart for coins because coins are dated. So it's a dated artifact and you don't have to do much to figure out, you know, the age of that versus what you would find with nails and bricks and, and pottery and that type of thing. And the archaeologist mentioned that she especially likes the 1812 battlefields because people carried coins as lucky pieces or, you know, just had carried coins in their pocket and ran away and had holes and whatever. And so 1812 battlefields become places where uh, metal detectors can find a lot of great coins. And I think back to the finding in South Carolina, too, about the free slave badge that we had the week before. There's a lot of neat things happening here. And it's not all about modern coinage. It's about coinage of the past as well and the story and the history that goes along with it. You know, that 1808 that they found, if that thing could talk, what was it? Who owned it? And as she pointed out, we didn't actually use it here. That could have been actually used to purchase a slave. We don't know. Yeah. And that, you know, that would have made it even more relevant to the story. So it's just so neat, the things that are going on. And that's just in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's there's lots of, you know, lots of activity in in the world numismatics. It's It's interesting, though, because the U.S. series on the New Quarters Celebrating Women, it really dovetails nicely with our This Week in History. Uh, this week in coin history, because it was on April 28th that the Senate approved Nellie Taylor Ross as the first female U.S. Mint director. So, you know, we're talking about women who've made contributions to American life. And Nellie Taylor Ross is somebody who, you know, she was the 14th governor of Wyoming. 
1927. She was U.S. Mint Director from 1933 to 1953. You know, you think about almost 100 years ago. I mean, we're talking 87 years ago, if my 86 years ago, give or take. Yeah. Um, if my brain is working today, that was not long after women got the right to vote. And we know that's a milestone that was celebrated on coinage uh, in 2020. So it's certainly interesting to see how some things, the world changes and and moves forward and some things take a little longer than others. We're just, uh, you know, getting the number of women in the Senate in different places. And, you know, there's a great sort of exploration that can be had in that regard. But, you know, when it comes to the hobby, uh, you know, I think there's been a great influx the last few years of young folks and, you know, more, a, a greater tilt toward having women in the hobby than ever before. As Jeff talked about the mad rush of people into the hobby, the makeup of the hobby is is going to change a little bit. And I think that's a, a good thing. You know, we, we need uh, a broad base because, you know, we want the pyramid to be as big and strong as possible. There's always going to be somebody at the top, but you got to have the broad base of folks. And, and it's something I see in social media uh, every day, you know, folk, women who are dealers, who are collectors, who are researchers. It's just a great thing. We, we want the more people to be involved regardless, but we want certainly people to feel welcome. And if, if, if that requires a uh, you know, some representation, people seeing people that look like them, then, you know, we want to embrace that and encourage that because this is a hobby that's the hobby of kings, but it's the king of hobbies. And, you know, you can be a peasant like myself. You don't have to be King Farouk to to participate. So that was what jumped out at me from the uh, This Week in History segment. I don't know if you want to add anything or respond to that and then uh, I want to know what happened in coin world history after well, that, though. Well, actually, this kind of segs together here, too, because we're going to be looking at the April 25th, 1994 issue. That was a significant year in our guest's numismatic journey because of his involvement with the coin club. But it was interesting to me that this was also issue number 1776 of the uh, oh. coin world. So, But you, we talked about the hobby itself and... It's an inclusive hobby because you don't have to have any special physical skills like a sport. You can be uh, young, you can be old, you can be uh, somewhat, you know, you can be less than physically perfect type thing. And uh, there's hey, not hey, many. I'm I'm in shape, round as a shape. Shape, I got you there. But uh, and that just it kind of segs to mind here because I think about my wife is a coach with the Special Olympics. And uh, she uh, has, you know, these individuals are are looking for inclusion and trying to find activities which they're being involved. And on this uh, issue of April 25th, 1994, it's a headline reads, Special Olympics coin gets quick Senate ride. And it talks about the idea of the creation of the Special Olympics commemorative coin that uh, featured uh, Ethel Kennedy. And, uh, you know, 1994, and it goes on in a little bit of the discussion about the uh, legislation behind it. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was a living person on a coin was a big deal then and, uh, you know, still remains a big deal now. That wasn't the main headline. The main headline dealt with paper money because Lloyd Benson, who was the secretary of the Treasury at the time, or was he vice president at the time? Well, anyway, he'd been in office. Well, he is the Treasury secretary. 
didn't make vice president. You know, do my history lessons here. That's okay. That'll get letters. But anyway, <laughs> he went to uh, went to Fort Worth to the BEP, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and he was on hand there to watch the uh, rollout in April of the 1993 series notes that were being produced. And uh, uh, Bill Gibbs uh, wrote the story on that. Also, he uh, wrote a follow-up story that says that the guests got their first stab at the uncut sheets that were uh, made available there. So that was kind of neat too, because the, you know, the paper money and what the BEP does in, uh, in Washington and also in Fort Worth. And uh, you, you talk about how much is being printed up. And it turns out that recently we found out that the uh, budget is actually for the production of more notes. It's always nice to find a note that's a star note or a radar or a ladder or something along that line. But just the idea that, you know, the paper money is out there. It's very much a part of our world here. And that's part of the inclusion factor we were talking about. Whether you're into coins, metals, tokens, paper money, uh, literature, whatever the case may be, there's room for you here in what you call, go ahead, say it, um, big tent, tent. Hobby. Camping. Oh, okay. Yeah, hobby. Yeah. That's, what, that's it. Okay. <laughs> that's it. So that's what struck me on the opening page of the April 25th, 1994. Uh, quick look at the letters. Really nothing moved the needle on that one. So we're going to forego that until it gets more interesting. Hey, no, that's fine. We, we don't want people to fall asleep. Certainly could be uh, dangerous if you're out driving somewhere and, you know, <laughs> listening to the Coin World podcast. But uh, this is such a... It's such a weird time. I acknowledge it. And, you know, it's something with which I grapple and I'm trying to make space for, you know, normalcy and things that really provide an escape. And the last uh, few nights I've just just gotten lost in organizing my collection with the move and, you know, just looking stuff up and pricing it out and figuring out, OK, you know, did I mess up when I bought this or was it a good buy? Was it, you know, it's been fun to just disconnect a little bit from you know the the social media and the of just looking up my coins and playing with them and that's enough you know that's it's what i'm here for it's you know we we um want to have that escapism and that oh you know it gives me oh let me you know i i start looking up a topic on one of the coins and then learn about it and i'm like oh yeah you know that's not what i'm supposed to be doing i'm supposed to be getting these alphabetized i'm supposed to be getting these sorted so uh, you know, we hope that you're using this time to great effect. Find out what you have. Find out what you don't have so you can go pursue it when, when you have the time and your money or both. And it's just taking the pause, taking the moment to reflect and and prepare, you know, for the next round, if you will. Yeah, it's so it's a case of reacquaintance. It's getting, you know, it was familiar to you, something that moved you before, and now you're having the opportunity to rekindle that that emotion that brought you, whether it be a book that you forgot that you had or whether it be a, a particular design of a coin and, and finding out that you actually have two of them. Oh, well, you know, so what? It's better. Two is better than none. So it's just there's no limitations and no restrictions, only those that you put on yourself. But when you have that opportunity to reflect on where you are in your journey or what you want to get to, what you want to accomplish, the folks that try to get registry sets, they have their definite objections. The folks would just be happy to fill a quarter book 
Um, yeah, we have our objections as our, our objectives as well. Yeah, we you have might have some objectives. Well. Yeah, yeah, we have a little bit of both is what it comes <laughs> yeah, down to. I think to, you but. object to the fact that there's no Florida quarters circulating in Florida, apparently. There will be. There'll be someplace I'll get away from my, I'll get out of my comfort zone. I'll go to Miami or I'll go to Pensacola or something like that hmm. just to kind hmm. of shake hmm. things Miami. up. It's like the, like the old days when you had the uh, McDonald's had the Monopoly game and you would think that the the park place was the only place you find it was Denver, so you'd eat in McDonald's in Denver. And yeah. that didn't I tried that in Australia and it didn't work. It's a total game total different game. So <laughs> that's just I mean it's just all about collecting and it's all about the quest. And that Absolutely. the quest is the quest is constant. When you get done with it, I mean I, I found about folks that had five different scent books back in the day. And the best quality scents went into book number one. The second best went into book number two before they were being graded. And then the idea, once you filled one of those up, then you, you know, moved on and filled another one up. And th- so it's just like, it, it all becomes, there's no right way and there's no wrong way. You just got to do it. Just I'm like similar. answering your trivia questions. There's no right way or wrong way. There's right answers and wrong answers. But we just <laughs> yeah. got to do it. There definitely are some of those. So two weeks ago, I wanted to find out about an event of importance to British numismatics. So 50 years ago this February, there was a major event in the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, it sort of is a line of demarcation between that moment and what would come before and what has come since. And, you know, I have to sort of couch the, um, the question in such a way as to not give it away, but, you know, so I wanted to know what that event was and what happened because of it. Why, why am I asking about it basically? So do you have any idea? I think you do. I think I do too, because I mean, the idea was I'm fortunate enough. My father-in-law is interested in, in coins of Great Britain. And he's more specifically interested in the ones from the sixties when he was stationed with the U S air force over there. And so he has little to no interest for coins from 1971 and beyond. And the reason that being is because that was the decimalization of the British currency or the British coinage. And so the interest, you go from the uh, the pounds and the shillings and back in the day, the farthing, and now it's a totally different different setup. So that was decimalization, and it basically became new units. You are absolutely correct. And uh, decimalization day, or D-Day, was February 14th in... 1971, but the Royal Mint had been preparing for this for several years. And interestingly, decimalization is the reason they built their um, mint facility in Wales, in the countryside of Wales. Then the um, uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer was from Wales, and the Welsh economy has struggled from time to time. And so, you know, in a bid to get them off of um, Mint Hill down in, uh, you know, really the heart of London. You know, they were running out of space there. So they they looked to Wales, a constituent of the kingdom, its own little country, if you will. And um, that's why they moved there. And um, that's why, you know, this year was a big year for, and is a big year for the Royal Mint. 
uh, 50 years of decimalization. You got it. Pat on the back. Uh, congrats. If you listening out there knew it, you know, you can uh, find, you know, I say decimalization. I didn't describe it. Well, that's when you go to a decimal system like we have in the U.S. where there's 100 to 100 units to the larger unit. And in the case of uh, Great Britain, you're talking pennies to pounds. Uh, so, you know, they had the pound before, but gosh, it was the confusing 1220, 240. You know, you had 240 pence to make a pound. Now there's just 100. So it's uh, it's a little easier to keep track of and make change and all that uh, than it was before. Awesome. Okay, I got one. So give me a new one. Okay. So because we're talking to Jeff Garrett about uh, the Red Book, I wanted to talk about the Red Book in this question. And I know a couple, several weeks ago, maybe it was, I asked a very specific question. I think it was about pricing in a Red Book, but that was like, you know, expert level plus, you know, who's going to have that memorized. So this is a little easier, but it's still tricky. I still think this is expert level because we know that this is the 75th anniversary of the Red Book. The 2022 edition has just come out. You do the math minus 75. You're looking at the 1947 edition. Okay. How many copies of the first edition of the 1947 Red Book were printed? Ah! Oh, boy. That's the question? That's the question. And I will tell you, the answer can be found in a guidebook of the official Red Book of United States Coins by Frank J. Coletti. So Whitman has this series of soft cover books, uh, about six by nine. They're up to like number 24 or 25 in the series. But number 14 in the series is this. It's you know, they have the red book, the annual, okay, but then they, and then they have the mega red and they have the professional edition and the large print some years and all that. But then they have this series of specialist books that have a red spine and they're numbered and each one has its own topic. Number one, I think is Morgan dollars and, and Lincoln cents, you know, is, is another, and there's, you know, there's different topics on each one. One of those is like uh, tokens and metals, one of them is on U.S. Uh, mint and proof sets. This book, volume 14 of the Red Book series, is on Red Book history itself. And if you don't have the book, you really should get it because it's, you know, we haven't done uh, what I'm reading in a while, but that's, it's kind of fun. And, you know, it's 10, 20 bucks. I mean, you, uh, mine's used. Uh, it's not perfect, but it has the information that I want and need. And gosh, you can learn all sorts about early Whitman history. You know, the book has been out for about 12 years, 10 years now. So I don't know where the pricing data is on the Red Book volumes themselves. But, um, you know, it's it gives you a good guide you can use as a, okay, well, if if this book was 35 then and I'm seeing it now for 55, well, maybe, you know, you know, and it's similar rarity or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's very interesting. And this is like the uber meta <laughs> thing for coin collectors, you know, the red book about the red book. So what a thing. So get the book if you don't have it already. Uh, you can find the answer in there if you don't have an inkling. You got your work cut out for you this week, Larry. Well, maybe so. 
But I'm just going to give a listen to this interview with Jeff Garrett, because maybe he's going to uh, shed some light on that, since he's the editor of the 75th edition of the Red Book. Maybe he's going to uh, going to tell us. What do you think? You think there's a possibility of that? You never know. You'll just have to listen and find out. So check it out. We thank you for being here this far. I uh, hope you enjoy the interview as we did. I uh, had fun doing it. Here it is. The Coin World Podcast is so fortunate today to be joined by Jeff Garrett, somebody who has done so much in the industry. In fact, was just recently in the top 10 of the Coin World most influential uh, people of the last 60 years. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being asked. I think the biggest contribution to the hobby you're making at present is your involvement with Whitman Publishing as the editor of the Red Book. Can you talk a little bit about when you got started with that? Uh, yeah, I've probably been working on it for about 15 or 20 years. I started out kind of as an apprentice and kind of worked my way up the old-fashioned way. So, you know, the Red Book is one of those books that just about every collector knows and has. There's a certain cachet, I guess, to it, right? Yeah. You know what? I think one of the reasons that I'm most proud of this book is it, it's uh, a collector's, you know, a very beginner. The person likes the day he starts, one of the first things he'll do is get a red book. But then also, even the most advanced people have been doing this for 50 years. A lot of people have it uh, on their desk as a desktop reference. So there's not many numismatic books that I think it has such a broad appeal between the absolute beginners and people who are, you know, world-class experts. And that's, I think that's a kind of a neat feat. And when you have something along the line of the Red Book here and uh, the panache that it carries with it here, it certainly that does help, as you mentioned, no matter what the spectrum of the uh, user is going to be here. So Jeff, with your experience in Red Book, how much have you seen it change over those 15, 20 years? Oh, that's a good question. It's certainly changed a lot as far as how it's produced. Ken Brissett, as you've talked to him, probably he's he really is old school, and he's you know he's been doing it you know forever and ever. When they first started doing it, they were you know they kind of kept pricing things on uh, like index cards, and they would have uh, it was all done by hand. And Ken Brissett, you know, still is not really excited about uh, using Excel spreadsheets. Now we do it uh, mostly by computer through. Uh, going things back and forth, you know, uh, on the production, you know, side of it. In the book itself, it's certainly, you know, we've tried to add more content as far as different sections on, uh, I don't know whether it's not, it's colonial coins expanding it and also things about collectors, the imagery, the, the uh, pictures in it have, have been, are vastly improved from 15 years ago. We've done, we've worked really hard to go out and find really good images. And we do that almost every red book. That's part of the process is to try to you know, keep the book fresh and, and looking different every year. And uh, also the pricing part of it, we've um, really worked hard to improve the, the contributor system. And we probably should talk about that more a little bit later, but the contributor system is really what makes the Red Book uh, truly, truly good, a great uh, reference because it's, you know, not any one person can know all this information. You have to lean on a lot of people. One of the, I guess, the challenges with the Red Book is it really represents a snapshot in time of being an annual publication. And, you know, the market changes rather rapidly. How do you really wrestle with the pricing challenges and make sure that you're, you know, as timely as you can be with an understanding that at some point you got to go to print, but those prices rest there on the bookshelf for a, for a year? Well, you know, that's that's kind of what my specialty is, is pricing. You know, I started off pretty much my involvement with Red Book was from the pricing side. 
So, you know, I've only more recently been become senior editor. So pricing has been my focus. Now, I'm a rare coin dealer. I've been doing rare coin as a, you know, by, as a profession for close to 50 years, almost 50 years, 45 years. And so I, I really stay in tune with the market. So I'm very, very conscious about, you know, I just don't take anyone's pricings. I look at, you know, study them, I work with the contributors to make sure their information is accurate. And even though, you know, you say markets move by the minute, they don't really move that fast as far as, because when a coin comes up for sale, let's say, it, a lot of it depends on what it looks like. There's a lot of variables in it. So a price guide once a year, it still gives you a really good point of reference if that price guide is done by, you know, really true experts that know what they're doing, which is what we do in Redbook is, you know, our seated coinage. I have a team of like five or six people that contribute to the seated coinage part. And a coin may say next week and sell for an outlander price. But in general, it's good to have so many people, experts to be able to, you know, give you, you know, good information across the spectrum of all those different grades and the prices and, and that. So it would be ideal if Redbook was updated every day, but it's not the way, you know, it does not set up that way and it's not really, you know, possible. So I do think the pricing is, stays relevant, even though it changes once a year, it's still, if markets are on the move, you can extrapolate. And, and also the, you know, the minage information, they take super serious. So that's, that's really, really important. And there's other factors involved in it. So it's, you know, it is. We all know we're in an internet world, but there still is a place for people want to have a guidebook that uh, that has has in, information at your fingertips. With this being an annual publication and a very expansive publication, how long does it generally take to produce it? In other words, when are you going to start on the seventy sixth edition? Well, we've already started that, so it starts like the it starts like the minute. I mean, we're it's an ongoing process. So the at the end when we're finally done, you finally hit the send button to the printers, and then by then we've already realized we've made three or four mistakes that need to be fixed. So the team at Whitman, you know, they start accumulating these files. It's like, okay, we missed this. This is a little error, and we got to or we we want to include this next time. And then a lot of times there's things that go into Redbook that there's just not enough space for because. To be frank with you, probably one of my biggest frustrations is the U.S. Mint keeps making all these modern issues, and it kind of keeps jamming the Red Book with all these new things. And there's things I'd like to see in the Red Book that we have to like rotate in and out. So we're already deciding like what should we put in next year's Red Book as a special section. Or one special section I did uh, a year or two ago was I totally redid the California Fractional Gold, which the Red Book is kind of one of the you know main sources for information for that because other price guys don't co- cover that as well. Uh, but it was kind of limited on space and then also trying to rotate out special information about it. So um, that process goes in. It's a year round process. Now the pricing itself, like where I actually sit down, go through the price grids and like get it ready for the final send is probably about a month or two process uh, near the end of uh, end of the year. So, you know, Redbook just turned 75, you know, the, the 2022 edition is just out. That's the 75th anniversary What's the future of the Red Book? I mean, over the last 10 years, you guys have come out with the Mega Red. There's a you know, large print professional edition, all these different iterations. But the Red Book is still the Red Book and still the must-have. But what does the future look like? What's, uh, what's the place in the market for the Red Book? Yeah, Mega Red has actually become kind of its own big following. And anybody listening to this, I can tell you 100% the, the Mega Red that the, the Red Book issues is, their Whitman issues is, absolutely the biggest bargain in numismatics. There is more information in that book than any other numismatic reference I can think of. And it's it's certainly essential if you have a coin shop or, you know, and, and its specialty is what it does, it, it has a lot of the variety information that doesn't have enough room for the regular red book. 
it's it's packed with information. And the book last year sold out, and they had to actually do a reprint. So I don't know the numbers they, that they print, but I know it's very well received. Yeah. And um, and just for your listeners, know kind of how it works is and why it's such a big job for me on these spreadsheets. So I have these big you know spreadsheets for every basically every denomination. So I'll do you know, a spreadsheet for silver dollars, but it'll be early dollars. It'll be one spreadsheet. Then you've got another spreadsheet for seated dollars and another one for Morgan dollars. And these spreadsheets have all the different coins, like all the different varieties that might be in mega red. They have, instead of like four or five columns that are in red book, there may be eight columns from pricing. So at the end of the year, I spend a couple of months and I, you know, working on get all the prices with the contributors to fill in that entire, we'll call it the, the big database. So that database is completed. And then when they do the red book, they pull the columns out they need for the red book. And then that way they're already ready for the mega red when it comes out a month or two later. The process is the same for both books and they use the same information, but they're pulled differently, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes plenty of sense. I mean, you have to get the efficiencies in producing such massive volumes of that yep. type of thing. So, I mean, just the idea there. And I mean, I pictured it in my mind, the spreadsheets, and I'm just going, oh boy, I, I'd get a headache. Because I that was yep. one of my purchases last year was a mega, and I had to wait for the second printing. So, I yep. just... Totally it's understand. It's a great book. I hope you like oh, it. It's it's, fanta- oh, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's on the yeah. desk. It's actually the only one on the desk right now. Yeah, it's a but, mind-boggling uh, amount of information for the for one book. It's and, and a lot of that credit goes to Dave Bowers. He's just a he's just a machine, and he just does so good with content. And you know, they rotate out a special section. I think next year is going to be Silver Dollars, the one coming out, and it'll be just you know, it'll just be absolutely jam packed with specialty information. And it's it's really the, you know, the Whitman has just a unbelievable amount of content and they pull that content to help you know fill that book with uh the mega red with that information and it's really what makes it special yeah and you know there have been you talked earlier about the red book and the imagery in the red book and that's i mean that's critical in my mind especially being able to look at do not actually have the coin in, in hand here but to look at the red book and see what the coin looks like and where the mint mark is and where the designer initials might be and that type of thing. And then you become infinitely familiar with the coin when you do finally get to see it at a show or uh, on the internet. Right. Right. Yeah. And and it's still good to have a, you know, like everything's on so many people thought about internet, but it's still great to have a, a reference that you can look up and have it all to be able to see it and look at this. And, you know, you know, cause I think there's so much on the information on the internet, it's actually confusing and, that's probably one of the biggest problems I have as a coin dealer is like people calling up, you know, eight times a day about according to the internet, you know, this, you know, this coin's worth a you know million dollars. And, and I was like, well, there's, you got a little too much information here. It's not worth that much. <laughs> well, that's the point I was going to make right there. It's just the internet allows everybody to be a quote unquote authority when you're in should reality, you know, rely on an authority and 75 years of red book would be enough to more than prove the authority of the book itself and the right. continuation and the effort that's going into it, you know, you have to have imagined the amount of expertise in this hobby that has had an impact on this red book through history. Yeah. And it's also the integrity of the Whitman organization. They just, they just do such a good job. They get such talented people that work and they, they bring in information from so many different authors that, that help contribute, you know, that like if I had to, really emphasize more than anything else is that, you know, we have over a hundred contributors that work on Red Book on an annual basis and they are the bedrock of really what makes it special because any other price guide or any other thing on the internet, you know, it's, that's usually a handful of people or sometimes one person, you know, putting that information together. And it's hard to beat, you know, the combined knowledge of a hundred contributors who are experts in what they do in their fields. 
one of the challenges with the Red Book is, you know, there are a lot of collectors and dealers who reach out to try to get new finds added, new varieties, different things. You know, being in the Red Book matters to the market and it, it has the power to make a market. You know, you think about, say, the Buffalo Nickel, the three-legged nickel, and, you know, things that are in the Red Book are then collectible. How much of a challenge is it to weigh what gets in there and what are some of the factors that come into play at that? And how frequently are there additions? Well, it's an even bigger deal than you think, but for other reasons, there's other consequences. So so let's say you add in a a different variety of a Jefferson nickel. Well, then should Whitman also put a hole in their in their Whitman albums for that coin? So if it's in the red book, you know, the people expect to be able to collect it. So you have to take that into consideration. And then also there's people who have collections that are considered complete. And if you add a new coin to it, then you're all you're having an impact on their collecting. So that's another issue. So sort of circle back to your question about how it works. So you don't get as many as you think. I mean, it's probably I'm just guessing five or ten a year people will say this coin should be in the red book. So my standard answer is, I said, okay, well, send me an email with your reasons why it should be, all the all the you know various arguments for it, and then send it send it to me in an email. And then what we do is I send it to my, basically my board of directors, which is Ken Brissett and Dave Bowers, and also Dennis Tucker, very importantly. And uh, the four of us kind of debate about, you know, this or that, you know, the pros and cons. Occasionally, I can't even remember the last time we added one. That's a good question. I had to go back and look and see where we added to the regular red book. But one of the reasons we have the mega red is because that's a, that's a good place for that information to reside. We're like, well, we don't want to put it in Red Book because that impacts too many basic collections, but it's wonderful to have a Mega Red because that's that's information. You don't, no one feels the need to own every coin in the Mega Red, but some people feel the need to have every coin in Red Book. So it kind of gives us a really good place for that stuff to, to reside and you know, kind of make everyone happy. And then occasionally, a lot of people are just way off base and it's just too minor a variety that no one just really cares about. When you do get the opportunity to go to the shows, I think you recently went to the Georgia show, or mm-hmm. uh, and so you have somebody comes up to you. How does it make you feel when they tell you how much the Red Book has impacted their lives? Well, I you know, I can identify with them because you know I I started as a beginner collector, you know, back in the seventies, and uh, I remember still when I would go to a coin shop and, and it'd be like I think the Red Book used to come out in July and. You know, in June, a coin dealer wouldn't even price his coins because, uh, you know, wanted to see what the Red Book was going to be. I know it has an impact, and I probably more clearly see it where, you know, Ken Brissett is, you know, has a lot of the credit for this because he is such an icon in the hobby. You know, he's going to be 93 this year, and he's like my idol as far as like mental sharpness and physical. You know, he still walks three, four miles a day. He's just, he's just an amazing person. And he's he's been kind of like the you know Mr. Redbook for so many years, and to to have the chance to kind of step into his uh, shoes of what he's doing, which is a huge job, and I take it uh, you know with the gravity that that comes with that, you know it's a, it's a big honor, and uh, I you know I get a lot of pleasure out of signing Redbooks. I enjoy doing it. I want to touch on something that recently happened. You know, you were in the um, top one, uh, you were in the Coin World's most influential hobby members uh, recently, a recent publication, and you were actually in the top 10. And I find it interesting, exciting, really, that so many folks affiliated with the Red Book have a connection, are on that list, but also then in the top 10. I mean, Q. David Bowers is a, like an editor-at-large or something for Whitman. You know, there's, of course, you, Ken Brissett, who was a long-time 
involvement with the Red Book as the editor and under whose tutelage you worked for some time. Dennis Tucker is in there on the list at large, you know, and and he's uh, Whitman Publishing and has, has really driven a lot of changes there in his time. There's a lot of cachet and prestige and, you know, a lot of important folks who have come through the Red Book um, family, if you will. To be mentioned in, in the same breath with those two is uh, is a huge honor. What do you think the Red Book needs to change or update or, you know, is, is there something, you know, how, how do you improve it? Well, you know, we have what we call every year a summit where we get the main people who are involved in Red Book and we all have like a conference call. And sometimes, you know, in years past, we sometimes maybe even meet in person to talk about we basically do a page by page, almost every year or two, we do a page by page analysis of the Red Book, you know, how to make it better, what could be different. You know, probably for me, I would like to see, I'd, I'd like to see some way to condense the modern issues have become, have been so, in such a space eater. I'd like to see that somehow condensed and have more expansion in the main Red Book on information about the vintage coins. So that's something I'd like to try to do. I don't know. The problem is there's so many beginner collectors that just want to see that, you know, the modern coins are what's important to them. So we have to you know, keep that in mind. But, you know, it's like, I'll give you an, for instance, like, like silver dollars, you know, people like an average person picks up a coin and they, they just look at the right column and says, oh, that coin's worth a thousand dollars. But then the lower conditions, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily, even though their coin is that coin, it would be nice if we had more room to do more photo explanation of coin grading. So that would that might be a nice addition to the Red Book if we could find the space for it. I'd like to see also some uh, keep rotating out some specialty issues that that I know that are important. That um, you know maybe even some more. I think some tokens and things that are Americana. A good thing would be a good example. Now I'd like to put more of the early coins that circulated in America, like some of the Brasher you know material and the, the counter stamp coins and the, you, know, you know the early Americana is such an important part of our numismatic heritage. And it'd be nice if we had more, you know, a little more space on that. But it's just always a big balancing act and a juggling because, you know, you can only make the book so big. And um, we're, we try to, you know, try to please a lot of different people, but it's always the effort to make it better. Well, there's always the situation where you can't please everyone. So you got to please yourself, as they say. But the, the idea that the Red Book has for 75 years provided a great resource for uh, the beginner or the uh, experienced collector, and that's what makes it even greater. So congratulations on a job well done. If you've got a couple of minutes, I want to just talk about the lay of the land uh, just beyond the Red Book here and talk about the experiences that we've been going through here because I read your uh, columns on a regular basis from NGC. So I, I huh? now I'm going to ambush you here on a couple okay. of things. So. I'm, a, I'm ready for it. <laughs> okay, basically, uh, I read with interest a few months back about the idea that uh, the supply and demand that's being faced by dealers. Can you address uh, what the situation may be as far as how tough it is now getting product that you need? Yeah, I, I just wrote an article uh, that came out yesterday with NGC and it was called the, you know, the market's getting ready to make a move. And uh, I do for a living is kind of understand the supply and demand factors. So that's, that's really what impacts the prices, of course. And I can tell you that coins are selling, any coin company in the country that has a, that had invested in an internet presence is having doing extraordinarily well with their business. So if you're a coin dealer listening to this and you're not doing good on your website, you're doing something wrong because everyone else is doing really, really well. And so the coins are selling. Now the problem is the supply chain. And that supply chain has been a, a real issue for a lot of reasons. A lot of last year, 
there were a lot of people who wanted to sell their collection, but they physically couldn't even get to the bank or they didn't feel comfortable going to a bank to, to get their collection out. A lot of the coin shops I know, uh, you know, they didn't have get much material coming into it. And um, they, you know, the ones they did, they would, you know, sell, sell really, really quickly. Um, also, a critical part of the supply chain is coin shows. I've been going to a coin show every other week for 45 years. And all of a sudden, I can't go to coin shows. Well, that that's definitely upsets my Apple card as far as, uh, you know, finding coins that I need for my, my client base. So the supply has had diminished somewhat. And um, I hate to call it a COVID boom, but there's certainly a, a, a boom that's, you know, it's for various reasons. I think it's the, um, you know, people that who were, you know, isolated at home that were discovering their hobbies on the internet. So that's an impact. I think there's a, certainly no doubt there's a lot of people that are very, very concerned about the government spending and uh, they're, you know, they're wanting to have hard assets. So they're looking to put their money into something they think is tangible. So the demand is out there. And uh, I think you're going to start seeing the price guys. I mean, I hate to say it, but I think by summer, Redbook's prices are going to be looking really, really inexpensive because I think coins are going to start coming up in price. Wow. Okay. Well, what about the, uh, there's been a lot of excitement about the centennial uh, Morgan and Peace dollars. What's that yeah. going to do for the actual uh, the the real coins, not the the modern? Well, they've already the silver dollars have probably already gone up about twenty percent across the board in price, in my opinion. Even though the price guides to me don't already reflect that, but I know on the on when I go to try to buy them, they're they're certainly more expensive than they were. Um, so silver dollars have have been have responded to that. I think it's it's the tribute coin the mint's doing, but also it is because that will get a lot of you know, publicity and a lot of new collectors possibly. But, you know, anytime as you have a, um, you're taking a super important series, silver, probably more people collect silver dollars other than pennies than anything else. Um, you know, they're big, everyone's attracted to them. And then you throw in a hundred year anniversary of the ending of one and the beginning of another. That's just a lot of focus. And um, coin market's also driven quite a bit by marketers. So, um you know, there's a lot of companies that spend millions and millions of dollars a year selling coins either on TV or through, um, uh, you know, advertising in magazines and all that kind of stuff. And they want to focus on things with a good story. And so there's millions of dollars being invested into promoting and advertising coins right now. And that has an impact. Yeah. And that's that's also, I mean, breeding ground sometimes for information being distorted because somebody doesn't completely understand it, I would think. And that's why having a good relationship with a with a brick and mortar dealer, I think is a great idea. And, but, and, you know, getting out to shows and talking to people because I've found in this hobby that knowledge is shareable and people are willing to share that for the benefit of, of everybody involved. I'm a huge believer in mentors. You know, I've had mentors my entire life and I think I would certainly I could give you a list a long list of people who have a huge impact and and as as mentors to me and I've learned so much. I mean, I'm lucky because I have a pretty good knowledge in a lot of series and a lot of that information came from people who are experts that shared that with me. So I completely completely believe if you have an opportunity you should take advantage of mentorship. Well, how do you get a numismatic mentor? I mean, that begs the question. Well, that, that's a good question. I think coin clubs are awesome. Um I sponsor a coin club in my area, and one of the reasons I do that is because um, I, I want people to be able to, myself, be able to mentor the people in my area. So there's probably 30 to 40 people that come to my coin club every month, and I think the primary reason they do it is because they want to hear what I have to say, and they like to, they feel like they're con, you know kind of connected to a big shot in the hobby. So I think they get excited about that. 
And I think there's that there's that opportunity around the country if you can go to a, uh, either coin shops are, are great because a lot of the people, you know, there are a lot of people willing to share their knowledge. Also coin shows. I mean, there's nothing like coin shows. If you can get to a coin show, if you like Indian head pennies, there's probably three or four guys there with nothing but Indian head pennies in their case. will get to know those guys and they will, or, or gals, and they will, uh, you know, share their knowledge. Cause one of the things about Whitman and my involvement in books is I haven't written the books that I've done because I get the, the royalties, which is, uh, you know, you can't really live off of that. Anybody could tell you, I do it because the more people understand and know about the more knowledge you give people, the more they'll participate in the hobby and they either buying coins or doing whatever they do. So knowledge is super good for growing our hobby. And the more you tell people, the more knowledge is out there, the more our hobby will thrive. And we all know life's about relationships. So, I mean, it applies to any business you're in and it certainly applies to this hobby and it's all about relationships. And the more you establish, the better you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy the hobby and be more successful. Well, you know, we just want to thank you so much for being here today for this. You always have something to say. You know, you're on all these different platforms and, and you're really at the front of the hobby and doing some good work and can't thank you enough for, for taking a few minutes to talk to us and, and reach the uh, Coin World podcast. Well, I, I appreciate being asked. And if anybody's listening that sees me at a coin show, uh, I'll be happy to sign their red book. <laughs> and, you know, we're hoping to see you at the ANA near Chicago in August, you know, fingers crossed it happens. I mean, we're still, we're still waiting. You know, that's, that's not for several months yet. It's going to happen. Well, I I promise my wife's, my wife's on the board. She'll make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm driving distance from fun. So I can't wait till July. So it's going to be a great thing. It will. It will. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be really good. Well, I, I appreciate you guys reaching out to me and I, I, I love sharing my passion for the hobby and it's uh, always good to be involved. Thank you. And that was our interview with Jeff Garrett, the senior editor of the Red Book, which is more properly known as a guidebook of United States coins. He didn't have the answer. He didn't give the answer. <sighs> well, I, you know, you you just never know. You had to listen to find that out. I wasn't going to give it away. No. All right. Well, it was still a great interview, a lot of great information. And I really want to thank him for that. Uh, and congratulations on being one of our top influencers. And thank you for the time that you spent. But thank you for the listeners who spent the time with us as well. Thank you for being here uh, as you've been this week and, uh, and other weeks. I'm talking to Larry now, but uh, thank you listeners for being here. We're we're working on some things coming up. If you have some ideas, let us know, reach out to us. We appreciate it. And um, we don't always respond on air or on the podcast. We do try to at least respond via the email or whatever message source until next week. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast.